This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of all things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. And don't any of you tell me that social media friends aren't real friends, because <laughs> I have been following today's guest for years, and I love his stuff. His stuff is amazing, and I'm so glad I got to meet him in person. What problem are we solving today? What is the Super Guppy? What is the Super Guppy? Oh my gosh, I'm (laughs) so excited and I would love to see this in person, but I'm excited to learn about how it was developed. So who is our guest today, Jeff? That's right, Jennifer. That excited reaction is exactly what our guest brings. Today, we have the fabulous Herb Baker, who is retired after a 42-year career with NASA. Wow. Welcome to the show, Herb. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, this is going to be such a fun discussion because we're going to get to talk about the Super Guppy, which is an amazing plane. And if you don't know what it is, stop the episode right here. I go look at the picture because it's really, really cool. But I always like to start with, did you always want to work for NASA and deal with space and all these things as a kid? No, believe it or not, I didn't. Even though I I grew up in in a NASA community, my house was six miles from what was then the Manned Spacecraft Center. Today, it's the Johnson Space Center. Wow. No kidding. so in 1963 or 64, when the Manned Spacecraft Center opened, by then they had the first two classes of astronauts selected, the original seven and the next group. And so right. all those astronauts and their families moved into my local community. And so I wow. was oh my goodness. Wow. Middle school with the Grissoms, Cooper, Carpenter, Sherrod, and all through high school. I played on the seventh, eighth, and ninth grade football team with Frank Borman's son, Fred, and no Jay Carpenter. Wow. So yeah, space uh, literally moved in on you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet you didn't want to work with space back well, then. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know what I wanted. I was more interested in, I, yeah. I was, I, okay. I, you know, sports. I, I loved going out. We had a, a huge yard, a big home, and uh, I was more interested in playing Little League baseball and football and <laughs> oh, yeah. all kinds of other things. The whole space thing just seemed to be just kind of a, you know, it was just so normal. I mean, everybody wow. was involved with space. It, it was nothing. Right. You just grew up in the middle of it. And in fact, I remember one story about, uh, I don't remember which flight it was, but there was a newscaster who was doing an interview as one of the missions was beginning. And they asked one of the five or six-year-old sons of one of the astronauts, so what do you think about your, your father going to space and being an astronaut? And he said, well, isn't everybody's father an astronaut? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, seriously, in, in his neighborhood, yeah. you know, there were all over. Yeah, the it was. Yeah. yeah, they were all over the place. So 
anyway, yeah. So, so if you want me to finish the rest of the story about how I ended up working. Sure. Yes. That was going to be my question. Yes. Okay. So, and again, even before I went away to college, I was 17 in the summer of 1969 when Apollo 11 mission occurred. And so I was lucky enough to get a job with the news media, just a temporary job Uh, uh to cover the Apollo lunar landing missions. They would send the TV networks would send crews down from New York where they were headquartered and set up a mobile home, a trailer on site at the Men's Space okay. Center. And, and that was their studio. They put a, a backdrop and a desk and, and a camera and, and they would bring <laughs> in astronauts and flight directors and such. And so my job, again, I'm just 17. I was not a, a media talent, of course. <laughs> back then, there was no videotape or, right. or internet. And so if you filmed an interview in Houston, the film had to be physically moved from Houston to New York. And so oh, my wow. main job yeah. was twice a day to drive to Intercontinental Airport, a hundred mile round trip, and take that film to Whoa. put on an airplane to be flown to New York so they could broadcast it on TV. And I did other things too. It, you know, that only took a few hours of every day. But anyway, oh, so yeah, even with that as a background, I went away to uh, the University of Texas in Austin and was a, uh-huh. a business major. Actually, I was a psychology major my freshman year because I was <laughs> really, really interested in that. You know, there's never that good in science. I mean, I, I was pretty good right. at that. And so okay. I, again, I, I, by my sophomore year, I changed to a business major. And so freshman, se- sophomore, junior, senior, by my senior year, I, I saw uh, to help pay my way through school, the IRS has the regional service center for five states in Austin. Okay. Yeah. So I had a, and it's, it's a government organization, of course. And so I had a temporary part-time job there again just to help pay my way through school and because it's a, a government agency I remember hearing some of the fellow employees who worked there who were working you know full-time that was their career and they were yes. looking right. to move, move up into higher positions and they were talking about this test back then to get a job with the the government you took a test a civil yes. service exam yep so there was this one exam was called PACE professional and administrative career exam and they okay. said, well, you know, okay. if you take that test and you do well, you you know, you might be eligible for a promotion. And they were talking about how how hard it was, and they give you a score in six different categories, and, and <laughs> you know, to to try to find out kind of what your your best skills and knowledge and capabilities are, so that if you do well enough, they'll know what job you're best suited right. for. Right. But that if you didn't score very well in one of the six categories, if you got below a seventy, they just give you a seventy. You know, they didn't. Ah, well, yeah. okay, or, yeah. Zero or 35 or something like that. So again, thinking, well, you know, that sounds does sound pretty hard, but I'm pretty good at taking tests. And I didn't have anything else planned. You know, <laughs> so I'd graduate and I'd find something to do. And so I took the test and you're not going to believe this, but I got my score back. And this was, I don't know, about four or five months before I graduated. And my scores in the six categories were four 100s and two 98s. And so... Uh-huh. So when you when you signed up for the exam, you indicated pencil and paper which cities with government organizations in them that you'd be willing to work in if okay. you, if you if right. were high enough and offered you a job. And so, of course, I put Houston without even thinking <laughs> that NASA was a government organization in Houston. Uh, so a couple of weeks after I got my scores, NASA contacted me. Oh, and said, they're hey. pulling you back in. They're pulling they, you back in. Yeah, they said, hey, would, would, would you be interested? You know, we, we saw your scores. And would you be interested in coming down and interviewing for a job? And I'm like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? You know, uh, do you have an opening for tomorrow? Sure. Is that 
so so one last funny thing about that story is that again growing up down here i came down for the interview as quickly as they would let me and the guy who interviewed me was the father of one of my friends in high school and so so oh, i don't know yeah. if that, i don't know if that helped or not but i'm sure it didn't hurt anyway <laughs> that's that's how i ended up at nasa and then 42 wonderful years later here i am that's fantastic we hear some amazing stories yeah. about how people have ended up and love knowing that you ended up there. So I'm sure Jen's about to get to it, but we are talking to you because one of the things you did, we could probably have you on five different yes. episodes to talk about cool things. But one of the things you did was this super guppy. Can you start for some of our listeners? What is the super guppy? Yes. Yeah. So it's basically an airplane to move huge pieces of equipment or modules or okay. space spacecraft around right uh, it's not made for people right <laughs> and it's called a super guppy because it's really odd shaped uh, some people have called it the most awkward plane and uh, <laughs> yeah i would agree yeah funniest looking plane and and so to get those big huge cargo pieces inside the nose cone opens to the side you know yeah. there's no door that opens and you walk in the, right. the entire front of the plane opens wow uh, 110 degrees and then that's crazy uh, inside it's 25 feet wide by 25 feet high Holy and 11 feet long oh my god wow. so so if you know anything about the jets that the astronauts fly the t-38s that they right yeah uh, you can fit two of those in that cargo area at the wow. same time wow oh my so, gosh yeah so uh so, so back yeah so back in the late 90s i was in the space station business office and we were about a year away from starting to fly some of these modules the space station modules that had been being right. built around the country and and we had no good way to get them there you couldn't take them over the road way no you know, low bridges and and all kinds of things and right. you didn't want to have to go through the Panama Canal if it was on the West Coast. To, you know, and, and, right. And so they thought, well, you know, because actually NASA had used a different version of a, an early version of the Super Guppy. In fact, the first version was called the Pregnant Guppy. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I bet uh, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. And the Pregnant Guppy had worked so well, they decided to make uh, another version a little bit larger and a, a pressurized cabin and, and a few improvements like that. And so it was called the Super Guppy. And so anyway, back in 1997, again, about a year away from starting, the first uh, element was launched in late 1998. Uh -huh. And so we needed something to, again, to transport those big things. And so NASA's, as you, you might know, the budget's always constrained, right? And we didn't have- <laughs> yeah, It's a government budget, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and not only that, but you wouldn't, believe the amount of approvals that are required for NASA to buy an oh, airplane, because wow. that's just not something we're supposed to normally be doing, even though there is a lot of aviation work, especially like at Armstrong and things like right. that. But, uh, right. Johnson Space Center doesn't typically buy an airplane. Although I did acquire, <laughs> uh, another thing I did before I retired is it's another story. But so to keep from having to pay cash for it, a group of us, it wasn't me by myself, worked out a three-way barter with Airbus, who had made the plane and owned it, and the European Space Agency, ESA. And so, oh, wow. ESA, so ESA negotiated and paid the cash to Airbus. Airbus gave us the Super Guppy, 
and we gave ESA 450 kilograms, that's about 990 pounds of what we call up mass. And that's that's basically payload mass that we launch into orbit. It could be whatever okay. you want. Oh, I see. That's a good, so they could use Mark. this as a credit, right? Yeah. So, yeah, uh, so ship up a small satellite or experiments or whatever. We'll take we'll, 450 kilograms of up mass is, is yours. Nice. Wow. I mean, that's kind of a brilliant way to handle so, that, right? Worked out really Absolutely. well. I mean, again, so that we, was 26 We years think ago. about NASA being smart with all the things they build and then and how they explore, but we hardly ever hear the stories of NASA solving these behind the scenes problems yeah. of, well, we can't buy a plane, but we need the Super Guppy to be able to transport stuff. So how do we solve that problem? And that yeah. was genius. Yeah. Well, so can you give us an example? What flew on the Super Guppy? Well, There's so, so yeah. many things I know. So just pick a couple. <laughs> so, just a, so, so just a couple of things. I know the Unity module, it was called, which was, so the very first piece that flew up at the end of November in 1998 was the Russian FGB control module. And then about two or three weeks later, we flew up the Unity, which connected it. So those are parts, yeah, those are parts of the ISS, right? Yes, they were actually the first two parts, right? And and so that was built in Huntsville, Alabama. And that's not even that close to the, you know, water. And again, they didn't want to take it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, no. (laughs) Freeway. And so that flew. And then also the truss, basically the pieces that everything is connected to. Yes. Right. Backbone, if you will. That was also made in Huntsville, Alabama, and and so that also was transported. And of course, that was some of the early launches too of the truss, because that's and, what again everything was kind. And these were all taken to Kennedy Space Center, right, where yes. they were launched. Oh yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every obviously everything that was launched on the shuttle had to find its way to the Kennedy Space Center. Right. Whatever. Wow, that okay. had to be cool to see, don't you think, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I like. I, this is fascinating right now in terms of just seeing it fly. But And I want to talk more about that. But before we get to that, the Super Guppy is still flying yeah. objects for NASA, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yes. In so what fact, types uh, of things is it bringing, is it moving around now? So it's moving around the, the Artemis vehicle. And in fact, okay. I know before the Artemis one launch, it, it had to get to the Glenn Research Center and Cleveland and the Super Guppy flew it from where it was being built to Cleveland. And uh-huh. so it was tested in a vacuum chamber. And I know it's flown the Ar- uh, Artemis vehicle uh, again since then, probably a couple of times. Okay. Yeah. And this is the Orion spacecraft, yeah. right? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, it's, it's, thank you for correcting me. That's It's, it's not the entire Artemis launch vehicle, it's, 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 the, it's the Orion spacecraft. It's big, but it's not that big. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's a really cool image. So make sure you check out our website because I've seen the picture of the Orion inside the Super Guppy. And it is just mind boggling. I love it. It's just thinking about the fact that the next spacecraft that's going to carry humans out into yep. space, go around the moon and everything it's going to do after that, it has to get moved around the country to different states and different space centers so that it can go through everything that it needs. A lot of us, even space geeks, don't really think about that. You think, oh, something's just being built and then, oh yeah, they're gonna launch it. Well, 
not all the building and the testing and the retesting and the re-engineering, it doesn't all happen right next to the launch pad. This stuff is happening everywhere. And to know that the Super Guppy has been carrying items from the very first pieces of the ISS straight up into what we still need it now for the Artemis program with the Orion, that is one heck of a solution to a problem. And yes. in fact, it's kind of interesting. There were only five of these Super Guppies that were built. And they were actually built in the in the 60s, middle to late 60s. And okay. uh, one of them was scrapped. Three of them are in museums and airports. One's in Tucson. There's one in France, one in Germany. I think. Okay. And, and the other one, the only one still flying, is the one that NASA owns. Wow. That's fantastic. So have you ever been up close to a Super Guppy? What's that like? I mean, compare it to like a regular kind of plane that most of us would fly on. Is it huge? Well, it, it kind of depends, right? Because I've also been standing next to a 747. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> and it's not, so it's, it's not really huge compared to that, but it is, it's a big plane. And, and yes, I have. I've been standing right up next to wow. a Super Guppy. Wow. It's kind of cool too, because you don't think about it. It has propellers. It's not a, a jet plane. It's a, a okay. Plane. Well, yeah. I I mean, I would imagine that that helps with the weight distribution a little better to use propellers instead of jets. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm I'm not sure about that myself. I don't know. That's me guessing. If I'm wrong, people email us and let me know. <laughs> I'm curious <laughs> about that. <laughs> so with the Super Guppy having been built in the 60s and you just mentioned three of them are in museums is the one that's still flying spacecraft around because nasa has several artemis missions planned so orion's going to be doing a bunch of work and they're going to build more than one yeah is the current super guppy is it at the end of its useful life or has nasa sort of rebuilt it along the way i think with a lot of aircraft NASA does. In fact, I, I guess that's a good word for it is rebuild it. Even if there's nothing wrong with it, it's kind of like a car you okay. know, for an oil change. They, <laughs> after, after, after so many hours of flight, the engines have to be, you know, right. taken apart and, and put right. back together. I think they do have, uh, I'm not familiar with all the intimate details, but, you know, obviously they have need spare parts and uh, sure. you know, things fail. And, and so I, I'm, Without doubt, uh, sure that they have plans for taking care of any of those contingencies that might come up to keep that obviously old airplane going. Right. I I don't know how much you know about aircraft, but NASA also has, I think, the maybe the only WB-57. It's a high altitude aircraft. Oh, Um, okay. I think it's also it may even be from the 50s or 60s. And, uh, yeah, they're still flying it without any problem. That's fantastic. So have you ever seen the Super Guppy land? Does it need since it's it seems like I mean, I'm assuming, of course, that they balance and they put the cargo in a way so that the plane is balanced. But does it need a longer runway to land on? No, not really. Really? In fact, the length of the runway to land is shorter than the length of runway required to take off. Wow. What that's worth. In fact, that reminds me of a story I heard the very, very first time the Super Guppy flew. Because mm-hmm. I can picture the folks, the air traffic controllers looking out at that thing. And they were kind of worried. <laughs> yeah. So they, they literally they literally called the fire department and the police to have them ready. Oh, in case, wow. In case it, first flight didn't go well. But of course it did. 
because they were afraid they were going to maybe run out of runway before it took off. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That would have been fun to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So actually, I don't think I heard. Did you ever get a chance to watch it land? Oh, no, no. I've I've got to see a few of the aircraft at, at Ellington land and take off, but not the Super Guppy, because, again, it only visits here every once in a while. It, it's based in El Paso, Texas. Gotcha. So I want to get back to a little bit of you. The Super Guppy and the planers are amazing. What are some things that you did with the Super Guppy, aside from just bartering with the ESA on getting them some some up payload. Well, to be honest, not a lot more. I mean, again, after we, the team, worked out the barter, we were pretty much done with that. And then it was off to another part of NASA to deal with the logistics of where it was going and what it was moving and and that kind of thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Different things. That was 1997. And I I worked in that space station business office for a couple more years, and then I and I actually moved to the space shuttle business office for about four or five years. But uh, ah. I did so. I didn't do do much more with the Super Guppy after we acquired it. But one of the very last things I did before I retired, actually, as it turned oh. out, was was to purchase another plane oh. for for uh, oh, yeah. uh, NASA. So what we they uh, I'll, I'll try to make this a quick story. So at that time. We were having to depend on Russia to fly our astronauts back and forth from the space station. And they took off yeah. and landed in Kazakhstan. And so we had a Gulfstream 3 aircraft to fly over to take them there and then okay. we'll fly back to pick right. them up. Yeah. And right. It was uh, getting kind of older and didn't have a long range. It, it had to make multiple stops on the way back to Houston. And sometimes okay. they were kind of in a hurry. They might not be bringing just the astronaut, but some kind of experiment or right. oh yeah from the iss yeah yeah from the iss and so and actually what happened was i was supporting the astronaut office at the time flight operations and they called mm-hmm. me to a meeting with uh you know, bob bankin was there and that was the first uh, time i got to meet him he yes. was he was the astronaut. chief of the astronaut office at the time and i could tell he was not wow. in a good mood and the uh, head of the flight operations was there and so anyway they explained to me that they were supposed to fly to Kazakhstan to pick up the expedition crew that was coming back in a couple of weeks. And there was a problem with the Gulf Stream and they needed a part to fix it. And they weren't sure they were going to get that part in time for the plane to go get them. And so that's why Bankin wasn't in a very good mood. And so (laughs) so they asked me to to do a couple of things. I said, first, go back and start working on a deal to charter a plane for us to fly over there to pick them up. And secondly, let's start thinking about buying a different, more reliable uh, plane. Yeah, reliable, <laughs> a, a Gulfstream 5. And so so as it turned out, gotcha. I didn't have to charter the plane. They did get that piece and were able to fly the Gulfstream 3 over. But again, before one of the, like I said, one of the last things I did before I retired was we got permission. And, and I even had to talk about approvals. It took approval of the center director, Ellen Ochoa. I had to write a memo justifying wow. why we were uh, wanted, why JSC wanted to buy this uh, Gulfstream right. aircraft. <laughs> Ellen Ochoa had to sign it, and that wasn't even good enough. She had to send it to NASA headquarters and have NASA headquarters wow. approve it. So <laughs> we finally got the approval to buy the plane. And uh, what we ended up buying the Nike, it was a, a Gulfstream 5, of course, again, it was their corporate aircraft. 
when, oh, when it neat. flew when it flew mid flew here to Houston and Ellington, it still had, when you fold the steps down, it still had the little Nike swoosh on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had to get, yeah. got to go inside. There was a Nike umbrella in the. <laughs> in oh my the, gosh! The <laughs> well, that's that's recycling, right? Nike uh, was done with their plane, so, so nice. So it was kind of cool. So one of your last missions was to to get NASA astronauts a new Uber ride home. There you go. From yes. Kazakhstan to, yes. to, so, to get so back even, to America. So, so that was kind of nice. Even after, you know, I'd retired shortly thereafter. And I, I made a point of watching because they usually would maybe sometimes televise or, or show photos later of the plane landing yes. right, at Ellington and the astronauts walking off. And I just said, that's my plane. <laughs> <laughs> of course, That's I where many using... of us can tell a story that yes, exactly. That's my plane. Yes. Of course, I wasn't using my money to buy it. It was well, NASA's money. Yes. Still. <laughs> of course, of course. I like it, Herb. So I'm curious because I know you do a lot of STEM outreach and stuff for kids and all that kind of stuff. So what would you say to a kid who thinks they might want to work for the space program, but maybe not be an astronaut or an engineer? What kind of advice would you give them? Well, so that's a great question because, again, I kind of fit into that. Like I had mentioned, <laughs> yep. again, growing up when astronauts and astronaut kids all around me and just a few miles from the Manned Spacecraft Center, and it never occurred to me, even after I was taking that test that I described, that 30% of NASA, even at that time in the mid-70s, was business, finance, business, wow. uh, HR, there was no IT or social media. You know, right. the, which there is now, which there is of course, today. which yeah. is big. But there are lots of, I mean, you know, it, it takes all kinds of jobs to run a yes. NASA center, not just there the does. Johnson Space Center, but all of them. And so so if you're interested in supporting or working in the, the space industry, you don't have to be, like you said, a, an astronaut or an engineer or a scientist or a doctor. There's lots and lots of other jobs wow. that, uh, again, especially today with even more openings, like you were saying, with the IT, you know, computers and social media and, right. and even more opportunities than there were back when I joined. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And one last thing, just because you were mentioned in social media a couple of times before Jennifer gets to that challenge. And I can't wait to hear it. Listeners, listen up. Social media has no age limit. You like cool yes. space stories. <laughs> you want to follow somebody that has a really cool space Insta. You need to be following her Baker on Instagram. Yeah. I'm telling you because I follow him. Yes, me too. There's a lot of great information out there too. And what I find is everyone is so generous about sharing it, right? It's a way to learn about the history. So social media can be good. We won't discuss on here all of the other sides of social media. But this has been so fun, and I am so looking forward to one day maybe seeing the Super Guppy fly. That would be cool. But I am curious if you have a challenge for our listeners, Herb. What would that be? What do you think they should go out and do? Yeah, so actually, I have a couple of challenges. You can choose which one or do both. Even there you go. Were. So most all of the kids, if, you know, if they're a kid, they certainly weren't around for the early days of, of NASA even, and definitely right. not for the, the first Wright Brothers flight back in 1903. No. We've come a long way since then. So I think <laughs> yes, it would be, be a cool to have a, however you want to do it, a bulletin board or a, a you know, timeline of the progression of flight back from 1903, from that very first uh, Wright Brothers flight yeah. to 
today. And you could it's even you know, just go okay. even just through the aircraft or go all the way to flight, including space vehicles, you know. Right. Yeah, that would be amazing. I that like amazing. that. So my other one would okay. be to, and you could just do a Google search, you know, create a, a vocabulary of words that deal with flight, like uh, altimeter or uh, yep. or yep. flaps or crosswind or rudder and all, you know, the whole, you could make a lift and, you know, thrust and gravity yeah. and all those yeah. forces that act on a plane drag. Yeah. yeah. I like these. And I, I think if you did that, you might think, Hey, this is, this is kind of cool and interesting. Maybe they would even become interested in working in aviation or becoming a pilot. Yes. Or an aviation technician or something like that. Yeah, that would be so much fun. I like these. I do like these. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation, Herb. Yes. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being on Solve It for Kids. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. How much fun is it talking to Herb? And I could talk about the Super Guppy <laughs> until we finally all just jump in the car and go see it take off or land. Now, this challenge, I have to jump straight into that. In some of my social media, I am known as the hashtag Museum Geek. And I think a lot of us love timelines at museums. Yes, yes. So, Herb's challenge, or at least one part of creating a timeline of flight from the Wright Brothers through wherever you feel like stopping, hopefully present day, Yes. Just creating that timeline, I think, is going to force you into his second challenge of creating a vocabulary list of flight words that go along with that timeline. There is so many interesting stories throughout that timeline of flight. Everybody's going to find something that they're going to get stuck on and want to learn more about. Absolutely. And it's so fascinating to learn about the history of flight and how it all came to be. And don't forget, we actually had an episode on our show about the X-59, who is NASA's supersonic plane. How cool is that? So go back and listen to that episode. We'll have it tagged on our website, solveitforkids.com, where we'll have really cool pictures of the Super Guppy as well. And if you've seen the Super Guppy or you just want to learn more about it, share it with us on social media. We are at KidSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I just may have to go hunt down and try and see the Super Guppy in real life because it's just so stinking cool, right? I am going to be keeping my fingers crossed that we all get to see that selfie with Jennifer and the Super Guppy. That would be awesome. And give Herb a follow on social media as well. If you're a Solve It For Kids follower, we promise you are going to love all the stuff Herb shares. Absolutely. And we definitely want to know if you create this timeline of flight. Until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on Solve, Solve It For, for kids. kids. 